Good morning, everybody. Please take your Bible and turn to James 5. James 5, just as we have begun the last chapter in Acts for our scripture reading, we begin the last chapter in James as we come near the end of this letter. James chapter 5, and this morning the message is entitled, A Word for the Wealthy, Part 1. From the very beginning of the appearance of tangible currency to its evolution in all its various forms, men and women have gone to shocking lengths to obtain it. Men have lied, cheated, stole, blackmailed, kidnapped, murdered, and betrayed confidants in order to just make a buck. Particularly in our culture, the mass accumulation of money is considered the chief mark of success. And so in order to be successful, one is compelled to plot a way to get rich quickly by becoming workaholics who never sleep, by anxiously monitoring every fluctuation in the economy, or putting themselves in a prison of enormous debt to create the illusion of success. Even decent, respectable, law-abiding citizens have an obsession with money. That's evident in the general attitude amongst unsaved people that retirement at the earliest age possible is ideal. Even among most Christians, I'd venture to say that we become unbalanced in our thinking as we join the world and trying to, quote-unquote, keep up with the Joneses and become consumed with getting ahead. I'm convinced that the idol of money is America's most revered God, as is evident as we witness the political party that once stood on the platform of basic immutable morality, compromise their once-held convictions in favor of a candidate who promises economic relief and independence. That's about as political I'll get in this pulpit. You can figure out what I'm talking about. So knowing that we humans, by nature, haven't changed since money reared its ugly head, and observing how our culture is fixated on the almighty dollar, the truth that we find this Sunday is quite compelling and necessary for us right now. In the text before us, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, brings the word to those who are consumed with the pursuit of monetary abundance, those who amass significant quantities of wealth for the wrong reasons and use it in sinful ways. Now, you may be tempted to think, well, I am by no means a wealthy person, and I honestly could say that I could not be charged with being a lover of money, so... I guess I'll just check out this morning. But I want you to think again. If after church you're going home in your reliable car to drive home to a warm meal and eat it while watching the Seahawks game, trust me, you're rich. You're rich according to biblical standards. And you're rich, filthy rich, according to worldly standards. So let me remind you all that we also desire comfort and security, don't we? 
if our furnace goes out, whoa, time to freak out, right? If the locks on our doors don't work, we might not sleep at night because we're worried about somebody breaking in. And so to have comfort and security, we have to have money, don't we? So the possession of money becomes a big deal to us. And so since that's the truth, then this message applies to all of us equally. And so in keeping with Paul's command to watch your life and doctrine, we need to allow James to speak to our hearts today with regard to the danger of accumulating too much stuff. The structure of James 5, 1 to 6 unfolds in three parts. The first two parts we'll tackle this morning, and the last part, the most lengthy part, we'll tackle next week. These three parts can be taken as a reminder to those who have been taught that a biblical doctrine of money involves wisdom in handling it. But it, also, but it should also serve as a strong rebuke to those here today who profess to be a Christian, but in reality flirt with the idolatry of money. So let's look at this first part. The first part in verse 1, the warning to the rich. Look at verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So James begins this section with another direct address, the same one we saw last week in the previous paragraph, James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, which is a short, abrupt address to his audience. And it's important to observe again, like last week, that he shifts gears quite often in this letter. He goes from sounding paternal or fatherly by addressing his spiritual sons and daughters as beloved brethren. But he shifts here to a condemnatory, excuse me, condemnatory tone of a weeping prophet pronouncing doom on a pagan nation. And the point of this address, come now, is to carry a forceful condemning tone like a herald delivering a sovereign decree from the king himself. The rich, whom James attacks in this paragraph, are the wealthy landowners in verse 4. And as a side note, most commentators believe that this section has in view non-Christians who are oppressing the Christian community. Most notably, John Calvin gave two reasons why this is the best interpretation. Number one, by hearing of the miserable end of the rich, they, the Christians, might not envy their fortune. And secondly, by knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. Makes sense to us, doesn't it? So whether or not you agree or disagree with who the rich are, it matters very little because the main point of this section does not change if you take it as being addressed to Christians or non-Christians. The rich, James refers to, as a class of people, frequently criticized in the Old Testament, in Jewish literature, and also among the wider Greco-Roman world. 
for their greedy acquisition of land and their exploitation of those forced to work on the land. And I say this because you need to keep in mind our exegesis here, right? We have to keep in mind when this letter was written and the circumstances that the people were in. Keep in mind that back in James's day, there was a much, much more extreme separation of classes than there is today in our culture. In our culture, percentage-wise, very few, very few, are without basic necessities because we've been raised to believe that the government should provide for its citizens if they cannot provide for themselves. But in James's day, there were no food stamps. There was no Section 8 housing. There was no Medicare, no welfare, and no, gasp, Social Security. In our culture, we've been raised to expect certain benefits from Uncle Sam, like public education, a well-maintained road system, sterile, complete hospitals, emergency services that respond within minutes or seconds, We've been raised with processed food ready for consumption immediately. And dare I say it, in America, we expect grandiose church buildings with impressive design and accommodations comparable to a shopping mall where there's something to meet everyone's preference. But in James's day, if you made it through a Sunday, Without being butchered by Rome, you were having a good day. In the first century Middle East, there were those who were wealthy landowners or nobility. And then there were those who labored day in, day out, tirelessly, just to survive. There was no free health care, no government housing, and no financial aid. Those are the people that James is writing to. And so if you weren't among the rich, you worked for or begged from the rich. Now that realization puts our first world problem in perspective a bit, doesn't it? Now that we know what James means and who James is addressing in this section, let's see the word he has for them which again is the title of this series, A Word for the Wealthy. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that the word James has for the rich is a striking rebuke in the form of a command. Look at your Bible. Weep and howl. He commands them to show external expressions of grief. And by utilizing this wording, James is borrowing from his Jewish predecessors. The prophets of old, during the Old Covenant, gave this command to Israel, and it was always, always in the context of God's imminent divine judgment. Listen to Isaiah 13.6. Isaiah says to Israel, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Amos 8.3, the songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord. Many will be the corpses, and every place they will cast them forth in silence. 
And so we see that most of the time where there is the command to weep or wail, it's because of God's righteous and just wrath that's coming. That's the misery that James is referring to in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Now, these miseries, they're not referring to earthly, temporal suffering, but to the condemnation and punishment that God will dispense to them on the day of judgment. The unrighteous rich who misuse their power by abusing the less fortunate reveals an unregenerate heart. And so they will experience God's wrath. Now, for clarity's sake, even though it's true that the rich and the unrighteous are so easily associated with each other in Scripture, remember Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. It would be easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. James and the holistic teaching of Scripture does not condemn the rich for simply being rich. Because it's not wrong to be rich. It's not a sin to have money. Solomon and Abraham were filthy rich. Biblical Christianity does not demand you to live in poverty as a test of true spirituality. Nor does the Bible call you to give away or sell all you have. But sadly, that false notion of religion has been marketed as quote-unquote Christianity since the Roman Catholic Church came up with the practice of monasticism. You guys ever heard of monasticism? Well, that's the idea that one could attain a higher degree of spirituality by living in desolate isolation, spending all the time engaged in external rituals, and being self-deprived of anything more than the absolute bare minimum necessities. For example, monks and nuns are practitioners of monasticism. And it's really a sad religious observance because it gives people the false sense of salvation. If I do these things, then God must be willing to save me. Or it drives the overactive conscience mad with guilt. Martin Luther, the great reformer, testified to his time enslaved to monasticism when he made this confession. Listen. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. How sad is that? How sad is it to believe you have to live in a stone room, wear rags, eat nothing but bread, drink nothing but water, and pray all day to be reconciled to God? What is more enslaving to that? But when Luther got saved by studying Romans, as you probably well know, the just shall live by faith, and he was liberated. He quickly realized that the path to God was not via monkery, 
Because nowhere in the Bible does it command men to be a monk, let alone elevate it to a status of supreme spirituality. And so I say all this to help you understand that the ancient practice of monasticism and the contemporary teaching of living, quote-unquote, radical is misleading at best and enslaving at worst. There's an idea out there that poor equals super-Christian and rich equals worldly Christian, but that's foreign to the Bible. So understand that James is not saying, give away all your money, sell your house, sell your car, and move to the projects to reap people for Christ. That's not what he's saying. And let me also add a caveat that every time you see a panhandler and a beggar on the street corner, don't feel guilty if you don't give them money. You're free to do that, but you're not. the Holy Spirit does not bound you to to give to everybody who asks for, for money, okay? I say that because I get that question often, especially from children. Now, James is saying here in this verse, you who are well off, if you live to rack up your bank account in order to selfishly live the high life at the expense of serving Christ and pridefully take advantage of low-class laborers, then be aware you will stand before God and give an account for your life of idolatry. That's the point of verse 1. That's the warning to the rich, the rebuke to the rich. Now let's examine the second part, the futility of the rich, verses 2 and 3. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So, the fleetiness, the fleetiness of material possessions is the point of these verses. And this truth applies to all of us, not just the filthy rich, all of us, because we all in America have our garage full of junk, don't we? All of our stuff is, as I speak, rotting away. It's all rotting. This word rot, to rot, James uses, it's a very... General word to speak of decay, and the word riches is a very general word that speaks of possessions or money of any kind. He's saying that they're not going to last long. Everything you own, every dollar, every stick of furniture, every nut and bolt that keeps your car held together, it's transitory. They're all at the mercy of time and nature. And not only does our belongings decay, revealing their transitory essence, they're also extremely fragile. James was on to say, your garments have become moth-eaten. Which is just another way of saying something is feeble, weak, and frail. Remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we take the teaching of Christ and the teaching of James, and we conclude by saying the Scripture does not condone materialism. And that's probably nothing new to most of you, but we all need to be reminded of that because we love our stuff. We love our stuff, don't we? We want to hold our stuff like a little child who says, give me back my toy. We want our stuff to be nice and taken care of. We get upset when something happens to it or someone steals it or we, or we lose it. But it won't last. And as we learned last week, we're like a vapor. Here for a brief time. And not only are you here for a brief time, but so is all your property. In verse 3, James Gables goes on to say, Your gold and your silver have rusted. In other words, the precious metals that you have stored up is unreliable. They will corrode as a result of being exposed to elements. And when they do, we will see how foolish it is to place so much stock in material possessions. Now, the hardest thing to deal with is not loss of wealth, is it? If you look at the big picture, if you look beyond the temporal, loss of wealth isn't really something we need to be primarily concerned about. Why so? Because of what James says in verse 3. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Wow. Consume your flesh like fire. What in the world does that mean? That's kind of confusing, isn't it? How could you go from talking about gold and silver and then your physical flesh? Well, it means what it says. You know the biblical teaching. The Bible has plenty of references to fire being descriptive of eternal punishment. The fire will consume flesh that James says reminds us that hell is a place of physical, conscious torment. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16... We read that the rich man died and immediately lifted up his eyes, being in torment. It was immediate. It was physical. It was literal. And there was fire. Fire symbolizes swift, inescapable, fatal judgment. And I know this is a hard doctrine, but it's a true one. 
And we need to understand it. We need to believe it. And we need to understand the implications of it. As my old Baptist pastor always used to preach, Jesus talked more about hell than he ever did about heaven. And that's true. Go through the Gospels and take notes. He mentions eternal punishment way more than he does heaven. And why did he do that? Have you ever wondered why Jesus, the great friend of sinners, the savior of the world, the lover of men, why would he talk about hell when it's such a killjoy? Have you ever thought about that? Well, because he needed to warn sinners about hell. And guess what? So do you. You need to warn sinners about hell. You need to warn the unbeliever about the truthfulness and reality of hell. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Very convicting quote, isn't it? And so your knowledge of the doctrine of hell implications should, number one, motivate your evangelism. And number two, create in you a grateful heart from being saved from it. You understand that's why Jesus came, is to rescue you from the wrath to come? Now, why does the transitory nature of wealth spell doom for these rich people? What's the connection between an abundance of wealth and hell? Great question. Well, the very fact that rich people, the the rich people that James is referring to has accumulated so much suggests that these rich people have been guilty of focusing on earthly treasure at the expense of heavenly treasure. Showing plainly, just as Jesus said, where their heart is. Many who profess Christ invalidate their claim to genuine saving faith through their opulent, indulgent, and materialistic lifestyles. Many show up on a Sunday and raise their hands and sway to the music and even give a hearty amen to the sermon. But in reality, they may worship money, which is evident by what they allow to consume their schedules during the week. Many church-going, even private school-attending Christian families demonstrate their allegiance to the God of Mammon. By having the wife abdicate her role as keeper of the home. Having to work full-time to pay the bills. And the longer I live in this culture, in the Pacific Northwest... 
which I'm still adapting to, by the way, especially when it comes to spirituality. The more I see the acceptance of professing believers skipping out on church on Sundays just so they can maintain a life of constant recreation. What a travesty. What a shame. What a shame. And again, just for clarity's sake, uh, owning expensive items and Periodic vacationing is not sinful per se, but it can become sinful. If the mind is totally centered on them. And so, how do you know if you're not the one who will have their riches be a witness against you in the end? How do you know? You're not one of those people that James is preferring to. Well, you can ask yourself this question honestly. Do you live in such a way that validates or invalidates your profession of faith in Christ? Are you dominated by the idea of getting ahead? Is your mind captivated by investments and savings? Is your heart incessantly anxious and worried about not having enough? Those are all convicting, heart-probing questions that we all need to consider. And it's my role to make you feel a little uncomfortable as the preacher. It's my role even to make you a little bit mad at me sometimes. Do those heart-probing questions probe your heart? It probes my heart. The thought that gives me the most terror in an earthly sense is not being able to provide for my family. Nothing has caused me more grief and worry than my precious children not being adequately adequately uh, provided for. In fact, it has caused me to weep with fear. A A few years ago when I was in seminary, I was strapped for cash because my GI Bill was going to be exhausted my last year of school, so I knew that I needed to find full-time work. And ever since I got out of the Army, I always wanted to be a cop. So LAPD was hiring, so I applied. And I passed the written test. And after I was notified of that, I was invited for an interview a few weeks later. I'm going into the interview with my nicely clean, pressed blue suit fresh haircut and a shave. I was, very, I was feeling very confident in myself, thinking that I'm a combat vet, I have a degree, I'm physically fit, I have good credit, references, etc. But after the interview, I was humbled. Immediately after the interview, the detective comes out as I'm standing in the foyer, and I'm expecting to hear him, Mr. Heitman, I want you to invite you back for our next interview. I was just waiting to hear that. I was like standing there like this, like, you know, ready to hear some good news. But it wasn't good news. I was informed that I was not going to continue in the hiring process. And so, needless to say, I was devastated. The whole way home, 
I was thinking, what am I going to do? Should I go to school? Pack up, go back to Alaska with my tail between my legs, failing seminary? But then when I got home and walked to the door, I saw my little girl, and I picked her up, and I hugged her tightly, and I started to weep. Because I felt like such a failure who couldn't even provide for his own family. But looking back now, my thinking was dead wrong. Because I was consumed with gold and silver. I did not trust God to provide. And I did not live as though my faith was being validated. I did not live as though I believed, really believed, that God is good and sovereign. At that moment, my treasure was on earth and not in heaven. And so, while it is good for men to feel the burden of responsibility to provide for their family, be careful, men, not to be consumed by it, or else you will be lured away from Christ to the false god of riches. Look at the end of verse 3. The final warning here. If you are consumed with riches, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, the wording and tone of this verse reverted my mind back to Jesus in Luke 12. And sure enough, carries the exact same meaning. So let let me read you what Jesus said to help us interpret that verse accurately. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this should correct all of us. As we live in this country, where a stockpile of money is what we're taught to do, we see the biblical teaching is that's not the goal. As I alluded to, this parable sheds light on what James is getting at in verses 2 and 3. That the mass accumulation of wealth is stupid because it distracts us from the rapidly approaching judgment. And so by way of application, 
the rich are to use their abundance to enable and stimulate gospel work. That's what James is saying. Don't store it up in your big barns. Don't store it up in your big fat bank accounts, in your investments. Use some of it to enable gospel work. Use some of it as though God is reality in your life. Because it's foolish to store it up and hide it. And it can serve it for the last days of judgment. It will be no use then. It will burn. And you will have to answer to God for your failure to be a good steward of it. So we have seen this morning that there is a warning, a stern, strong, condemnatory warning to the rich people unrighteously using their power and money to take advantage of others, void of the reality that God is in their life. We've also seen the futility of riches. How it's all going to rust. It's all going to be eaten by moths. It's all going to disappear. And so that should serve as a convicting reminder not to be so attached to our stuff. Which I like to call junk. But Jen doesn't like it when I call her stuff junk. So I say stuff. But in in all seriousness, it, it does us good to remember this biblical teaching. Though it's not wrong to have money, it's not wrong to have some set aside for a rainy day and some set aside for when you can no longer physically work. There's some balance to this discussion, right? The point of the message is for rich people not to be consumed with it and to use it wrongly because in the end, it's all going to rot away. What's more valuable are the souls of men. And so we are to be heavenly minded by using our resources and our possessions and our money primarily to enable the worldwide church to execute the Great Commission. So next week, I will examine the specific indictments of the rich, which you can read about in verses 4 to 6, but time does not permit me to cover those verses adequately today, so we will pick up next week in verse 4. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this convicting reminder that riches can be a danger to us and that it can distract us and take the place, the rightful place, of you in our life. For those of us who may be consumed with our riches, may you break us and cause us to repent of that thinking. May we not be consumed with our careers and making money for our own personal gain, but may we be be consumed with the Great Commission and service toward you and towards others. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can repent of these things, be reconciled, and grow on to Christ's likeness. That is my prayer this morning, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.